Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the great love you have for us. Um, knowing that all we needed was your son. We need to add nothing to his finished work, but just put our faith fully in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, what a blessing to sing that from our hearts, to know that truth, let it to resonate with us over and over. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, remind us of those truths even tonight. Lord, we thank you for the book of Psalms, uh, just the sweet reminders of truth, of care and comfort that we find in them. And we ask that you would minister to us again through Psalms 131 tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer we set out to kind of really focus on the Psalms a little bit. I think you've heard quite a few messages from the Psalms. We called it the Summer in the Psalms. Um, I will uh, restart my series in um, the Pentateuch with the book of Numbers on August 31st. Can't wait to do that. I've already been reading and studying ahead and looking forward to that. But I want to look at this Psalm uh, tonight, and I really entitle it David's Inspired Recipe for Anxiety. Um, Psalms are great for that. Uh, as we struggle with anxieties that crop up in our life at times, uh, God has produced so many wonderful psalms to remind us of them. And this certainly is one, and I think you'll see this as we work our way down through this little short psalm. Psalm 31 uh, is a part of a greater group. There's 15 psalms there that are called ascent psalms. And uh, some are by David. Um, this one here is particularly 131 is by David. There's one in the group of 15 that is by Solomon, and the other authors are unknown. But they start in Psalms 120 and work their way through Psalms 134. Um, ascent Psalms uh, basically were traditional psalms that were sung as the Hebrews ascended to Israel, to, excuse me, to Jerusalem, to the temple particularly. And they would sing these songs along this pilgrimage. And so all these Jewish tribes would travel together and they would gradually climb to, to Jerusalem. And these songs would be sung over and over and over by the nation. When you look at the Hebrew end of this, it always has a little bit of a starting to it. You'll see it said a song of ascents. Uh, here, this one particular is of David and uh, the Hebrew word means going up, right? They're going up, and they're singing as they go up. And though most of, most of the psalms they believe were put to music, that they sang them, these particularly 15, they memorized and they sang along the way. Now, these psalms uh, would encourage the nation as they made their way to Jerusalem, and they would, they would keep a pace with it, right? They would sing it... Um, and keep pace with it physically, but it was a reminder that they were to trust in the Lord, and they were to anticipate a coming Messiah, and so there's much to learn from these psalms. Now, in Psalms 131, we find a hymn here in which David is going to confess these simple truths, and I think what's attractive to this as I've studied this is the simplicity of it that really warms and encourages your soul as you study it. Now, we don't know the specific circumstances of David's life at this point. They're not revealed in this. Um, but we see just this overt expression of David to trust and put his faith in the Lord and to lead those that he cares for to do the same. And so we, we find great, a great source here to remind us of trusting in God and not in ourselves. 
Interesting enough, um, when you think about this psalm, we're going to touch on this tonight, is that a maturing believer often gains, I want you to think about this, a maturing believer often gains a more childlike faith. Right? I want you to think about that, because it's going to be in the psalm. I, I think the think reason I say that is because as we grow in our faith, we continue to surrender completely more as we know God more, as we grow in our knowledge of Him. We, we surrender more and in a way that is like a childlike faith. You're going to see that come out in this. Now, maturity brings on, to, to highlight that, maturity brings on uh, help for us to be um, somewhat unquestioning of God. We, we, we accept who He is, what He's doing. We, we, maturity brings on an unwavering reliance on who God is and what God does. And, and as we grow in maturity and that Christ-like, childlike faith grows, we, we lay back in His arms, in a sense. Where when we're young, we're restless, we want answers to all the things, we don't want to study and do the work uh, to know a God better, and so we question in a wrong way. But as we get older, we're like that child who says, God, I just want to be next to you. I trust you. Do you see what I mean by that? Well, I think David highlights that quite a bit in here. I think the opposite is true, though, that it is a child of God who looks to his heavenly father with complete trust versus an immature child of God who keeps constantly trusting in our own selves, right? When Jesus was talking, Jesus used this phrase many t- several times, particular um, early on in his ministry, he's in Peter's house, he takes a child, sets it on his lap, and says, unless you come to me like this child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Later on, a little, quite a bit later on, closer towards the end of his ministry, in Matthew 18, he says the same thing, but the context is that disciples have been arguing, now listen to this, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. So in Matthew 18, verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child, become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here these men who are the disciples, who would soon be the apostles, who would go out and preach the gospel and, and radically affect the entire world with this message, he's reminding them, if you don't come like a child, you don't inherit the kingdom of God. And so that's part of what we learn from a psalm like this is, am I like that child, that trusting child willing to lay back in the arms of Christ? So as we see here, David will be expressing his trust and faith in God in unique ways. And and I think he's grasped his forgiveness. The psalmist beforehand, I love verses 3 and 4 of chapter 130 there. He says, if the Lord should mark my iniquities, who could stand, right? Uh, it's a great statement. But then he says in verse 4, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And so uh, David has certainly trusted in God. He knows he's forgiven. Uh, he understands the great forgiveness. Psalms 32 is that great passage uh, that he just releases in worship of being a forgiven man. And what a joy we find in studying Psalms 32. Well, this psalm is inviting us to do the same, to love the Lord like a child in a sense and to trust him. And when we have that childlike faith, there is not the anxiety that we often uh, come up against. How many of us struggle with anxiety over certain things? Pressures from whatever. We, we, we tend to do that. 
But then we look at our children and they're like, what's for dinner? <laughs> Can I get a cat? <laughs> and they, they, don't, they don't have those things, right? Because they trust mom and dad. They, they have a life that is protected from those things. They lay back in the arms of those who shepherd them. And so childlike faith is a real recipe to deal with anxiety. All right, let's look at a couple thoughts here and see if we can learn from this. Number one, humbling yourself, ourself, before a loving, sovereign father is a cure for anxiety. Now, real peace comes from real perspective. I think one of the problems is we have false perspectives, right? At times we want to look at something, but we've not repented of something or we we're frustrated with something or might be, and so our perspective can be skewed. Real peace comes when we have a real perspective. Who is God? What has he done? How does he look at me? Are my sins forgiven and in a sense forgotten by God, although he's God and can't forget anything, but he chooses never to bring them up? Do I have that real perspective of who God is? Because if our biblical perspective of God is flawed um, by our, our, our uh, shoving in our own views of God and how we think he operates because we make him more like us than us trying to be more like him, then we come away with false perspectives and we create sinful anxieties. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Do, you, do we have a real perspective, a biblical perspective of God? Because that's where peace comes from and that's how anxiety is, is cured in a sense. Now, we must grasp that we're, we fit into the grand scheme of things. You have to understand how we do that, right? It seems today people think they're the center and, and God and everybody else goes around them, right? I want to do this. I want to be this. I might want to be this later, but I hold the option to be this. And everybody else has to say what I want them to be, what I want to be recognized. And so there's this constant revolving around themselves that's infiltrated the church in so many ways. And so there's a failure to grasp where we fit in the grand scheme of our relationship with a sovereign God. We're his children. He is the Father. He sets the direction for our lives. And when we, when we buck against that, I promise anxiety comes in all kinds of forms. And so we have to ask the question, well, who does the universe center around? Well, it's certainly not us. It's the one who created it. So David starts to try to deal with these things. And, he, and I think he's showing us what God has done in his life. Look at the first verse there. This is the first part of the verse, first stanza, we would call it. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud. Well, if you want a cure for anxiety, this is one of them right here, right? I, I promise you that pride produces all kinds of anxiety. It, it, it produces anxiety. And so David here gives us a cure right off the bat. My heart is not proud. See, the Bible reminds us, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to, Philippians chapter 2. In fact, if you want encouragement, you want joy, you want to make my joy complete, Paul says in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, you want to make my joy complete, 
Be unified. Um, don't exalt yourself. Think of others before yourself. That type of attitude helps us not fall into this great anxieties. It's a very much of a cure. And so David says, oh, Lord. And notice how he addressed him. He addressed him as authority and master and lord and ruler. My heart is not proud. See, pride causes stress. It causes stress in our life. You want to create more stress, keep feeding your own pride, and, and you'll have all kinds of stress. You'll have stress in your life. You'll cause stress around you. That's what happens. But notice the second stanza in verse 1. Nor my eyes haughty. I read my notes, I thought this. I said, Lord, there's times we look beyond God's supply. I think one of the failures of men, not in all, all circumstances, is men, sometimes we don't struggle with the past as much as maybe women do at times. We're out there wanting to know what we can get next. And there comes all kinds of problems when we are pursuing things beyond what God has supplied. And, and stress comes with that because now your whole life is pursuing something that you don't have. John warns us of the lust of the eyes. And I think sometimes we think maybe that's some kind of pornography and certainly that would fit in that. But often our eyes look upon things that we don't have. We desire to have something that we don't have and it creates a, a tremendous amount of stress. Because when your eyes are off to something that God has not supplied to you, being a person, finances, homes, whatever it may be, now your eyes are not on him, you're on something that God has not given you. And there's great stress that comes with that. And that creates anxiety. See, our eyes get bigger when our heart swells with pride, doesn't it? We want to be known in some way. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, nor do I involve myself in great matters. Well, here I think we can understand that anxiety increases when we get into our heads something like we think we know better than someone else or we, we even know better than God, right? David says, I, I don't get in, involved I, myself in, in some of these great matters. Now, that does not mean that we don't study the Bible, we don't think about the greatness of God, we don't think about the great scheme that God has laid out from the, from the foundations of the world and how he's going to fulfill it. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. But so many times, I think Christians want to go get into something that causes so much stress, something that's beyond their control. And God wants us to speak with proper biblical knowledge, with biblical truth, and speak in truth and love in those areas. But there are things that we just cannot fix. Do we know that? Do you understand? You cannot fix our political system in this nation. And yet, I have talked to too many Christians, particularly this last year, who actually confess their sins that they are so stressed out over what's happened in our nation. These are things that has to be given to the Lord. They cause tremendous anxiety. And a focus goes off of the gospel and a great God who we say, oh yeah, he has all things in control. But we act like he doesn't, don't we? 
So there's great matters that are beyond us, right? How is this all going to play out? What's going to happen with us and China? Blah, 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 and, right? There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. And I'm not saying that we don't vote and we're, you know, we don't pay attention. And, and I mean, I'm always concerned politics really for one thing is uh, how is this going to affect our public uh, proclamation of the gospel? It's the way I vote. It's the way I think. That's how my political mind works is around the gospel end of things. And there's just so much going on. You know, I have a conversation last night about just, it's, it's, I mean, one thing happens here. There's a raid of this. And these people say over there, and it's just back and forth, back and forth. And you go, who's ever going to solve this? No one. Except God. And there are things that just belong to him. And, and we've got to let things go and let the Lord take care of them. And so let me ask you a question. What's in your life right now that you're really wrestling with that you really, when you think about it, I have no control over this, but I'm totally stressed out over it. Is it a wayward, a wayward child? Is it your health? <clears throat> Excuse me, your health. I mean, some of these things that, that we, are great matters that we don't have the answers to and we have to depend on the Lord. And when we don't, great anxiety comes with it. Notice the last part of that verse. It says, or things too difficult for me. <laughs> what a statement. Or, or things too difficult for me. There's things I don't have the answer for. I wish I did. There's things that go on in our church I don't have the answer for yet. I don't know how God is going to figure this out. I know biblical texts. I know how we're supposed to obey and what we're supposed to do, but I don't know how he's going to do certain things. And I think what's happening here, just as you look at this first verse, David is relinquishing his anxieties to God. Here they are, God. Here they are. My heart's not proud. I'm not trying to figure this out on my own. I'm not looking to things you have not provided. I'm not going to involve myself in things that only you have the answers to that are far too difficult for me. I am going to trust you. Anxiety starts to come out, isn't it? It's such a fitting verse. I know even just in my life, personally right now, things that, that you, I can find myself, I've studied this again today, just realizing, Lord, I've got to let that go, got to let that go, got to let that go. I don't have the answer for it. I need to trust you. I think you know, some wise people have said it's a difference between an open hand and a closed fist, right? It's holding the things that God has given us, the things that we know about loosely versus trying to grasp those things. And I think when the fist is closed, there's spiritual frustration that comes. There's lack of grace with one, of pe- one another. And and in a sense, I think when our fist is closed, are we trying to direct God's direction? Right? Proverbs 3, 5 says he's directing our path. Right? But I think sometimes we're trying to direct his. And we get in the habit of that, right? Husbands will try to direct their wives' paths. Wives will try to direct their children's paths, or wives will try to direct their husbands' paths. I mean, you always go out, we try to control things, and, and here I think David is just saying, I relinquish this. <laughs> I can't do this, God. I think we have to look at personal um, ambitions, or, or do they match up with what God's doing? Because I think when we begin to pursue something that God is not pursuing, <laughs> we'll find ourselves very anxious and very 
upset and struggling through those things. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you that we're not to think more highly of ourselves. Rather, we are to think of each other. But to him who has sound judgment, God says, God has allotted each a measure of faith. And I think that's such an important truth. What is God, what faith, where are you at in this great journey, this great progressive sanctification that we've gone on? Where are you at in that? And are you, are you okay where you're at? Are you living where you're at, but still moving forward, in a sense, trusting God in that situation? And here's the problem. One of the things we tend to do is we may be okay with our journey, but we don't like where everybody else's journey is. I've told many parents, you're hard on your children Where were you when you were their age? Careful. Careful. This doesn't mean that we're not engaged in our children's life, helping them, pointing their little spiritual faces towards the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his word, but remembering where they're at. And and, and coming, coming alongside God in their sanctification process or that process of them coming to the Lord, whatever that may be, wherever they're at. We, we, we don't overstep our bounds. We don't, we don't live beyond the faith that God has given us. And when we live beyond that, we find ourselves in great trouble. So I think relief comes when we know our place, when we know our limits and responsibilities. And when we don't, we think past what God is doing, and then we find ourselves alone. It's very, I don't know if you've ever heard that saying. Yeah, I, I know this. I, I, I've been out in front of God a couple of times. It's just no fun out there. It may be fun for a little while. <laughs> there's no dust. But pretty soon you look around and you go, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't have anybody to follow. I'm not following the Lord. I'm out front of his will. And that causes great anxiety. I promise you all know that, don't you? You ever been out in front of God or something? You wanted something and you got ahead of him and you found yourself in deep frustration. Well, second thought, I think what David is trying to teach us here through this inspiration of the scriptures here is silence before God brings relief from anxiety. Silence before God. Just think about David's life just a little bit as he writes this to us. He's king of a superpower in the nation of Israel. They have crushed enemies. He's killed his thousands upon thousands. He has critics. There's people that hate him. There's people willingly to, ready to put up coups against him. He has an economy of a nation that lives hand to mouth because there's no refrigeration, there's no electricity. Every day something has to die, uh, be farmed, uh, be cooked. Everything has to be done. There's an economy that's running for millions of people inside of these borders, and he thinks about that. There's natural threats from creation. If it doesn't rain because they don't have electricity to pump wells, they can dig them by hand, but you can only go so far with that. I mean, if the rains don't come, the nation can starve. I mean, there's so many things that most likely going through a ruler's head like this. He's got borders to secure. Israel, even to this day, is surrounded by their enemies. They always have. Every border, it seems, outside of the sea, and even there, there were problems at times, there is pressure against this. David has to deal with this. 
he thinks about the safety of his family. It isn't hard to read the kings of Israel. There's a king, and then somebody kills that king, and then another, his son takes over, and somebody kills him, and I mean, on and on and on, right? There's all these people dying, particularly in the northern tribes, um, because somebody in their family kills them. And that, that's going on. There's attacks from rebellious children, right? He, he, he sees that. I, I'm just telling you, this is kind of, I think, us just writing down things. He had a mocking wife. He's coming back from war with great victory. And he's dancing, coming in, and they're singing his praise, and his wife is mocking him. It's anxiety, isn't it? His children raped in his kingdom. He has murders that take place within his family. Babies die. People die. 70,000 died because he made a godless decision. I mean, few possibilities of anxiety there, isn't there? Right? I'm just trying to live on my retirement. <laughs> so so I, I think he understands anxiety. I think he understands what it means to trust God in these issues. And, and again, when he failed, that's put in the Psalms or it's put in the, the history of Israel for everybody to read for thousands of years, right? But David knew some things. Look at verse 2. David said, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. A lot of us, when we are frustrated, we talk. Right? We express ourselves, sometimes very poorly. David learned to rest his soul. See, when you and I are agitated, when there's difficulties going on in our life, our souls are at an uneasy place at times, aren't they? Now, I'm not talking about loss of salvation, the, the, the security that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm not talking about, but I think you know that inner person of you, when there is anxieties there of unrest, you know what that feels like, don't you? Tension. Tension in marriage, tension in families. Tension in the church. Tension on jobs. There, there is a, a stress and an anxiety that comes with this. And David knew this as I, just, as I just read that list of a few things that I just thought off the top of my head that he had to probably daily deal with. He says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. I think anybody in this room who reads their Bible in a regular or semi-regular place, you know what this means. That moment when you shut out the world, and sometimes children, (laughs) and just all the things that we all have going on, and you just spend time with God and his word, you can feel your soul rest, don't you? It comes back to those spiritual disciplines, right? Spiritual disciplines are part of our growth in God, our growth in our love for God, and walking with God in that progressive sanctification that we understand is that there's spiritual disciplines that take place where men and women of the word, we pray, we attend church, we're discipled. All of those things are part of our spiritual disciplines. And and when we quiet ourselves, compose ourselves and our souls, that's where anxiety now is under control, right? I've come under the authority of the Lord. And so I think David learned to rest his soul. I wrote that in my notes today. I thought, Lord, that's probably a problem with me. (laughs) I don't rest my soul enough. I carry things that sometimes I can't solve, and I I let that weight 
I, I, I mean, I, am I okay? Anybody, am I alone in this? Please tell me I'm not. I'm, okay, good. Uh, I was getting nervous there for a while. Have I rested my soul? Is your soul rested today? Or is it agitated? Is there anxiety stirring up within you? These are great things here. Compose and quiet your soul before God. I, I think there's a human responsibility here. Notice he says, I have, right? This is a I think this is how we resist anxiety. There's this human element. I have composed and quieted my soul. I took steps. It doesn't just happen. We must make ourselves still before God, right? We have other psalms, be still and know that I am God, right? So, so there's a step that has to be taken. We have to say, God, I'm agitated. I'm frustrated. I don't know what's, how this is going to work out. I'm, I'm seeming to carry weight that you don't want me to, but I want to carry it anyway because I'm just stubborn. And, oh, God, help me rest my soul. See, I think in one sense, David doesn't sit back and just wait for some kind of spiritual phenomena to take place and deliver him. He does something. He gets himself in a place where he can quiet his soul. I think that's, that's real important in this verse. But on another sense, David quiets his soul through waiting and worshiping as well. This Tuesday, right? Our staff meeting is on Tuesday. <laughs> we talked about waiting on the Lord. Let me show you a verse. Psalms 147. And I think this is part of probably what David did. Psalms 147, 11. If I'm going to calm and compose and quiet my soul, you go, Scott, how do I do that? Part of it's just waiting on God. Look at verse 11, uh, Psalms 147, 11. The Lord favors those who fear him, have a reverential awe for him, who worship him is really a great word you could put in there. Look at this. The those of the first phrase, the Lord favors those, they are the those of the second phrase. Those who wait for his loving kindness. See, you, you, you become, when we quiet our souls, we're ones who can quiet our souls because we trust and worship God that he has all these things in control. And, and we can also say, God, I I need your, way, your loving kindness. I'm going to wait for it. I'm not going to run ahead. I'm not going to try to gain it in some other way. I'm not going to try to manipulate or, or gain this in some uh, unprofitable way. I'm going to sit and wait on you because I know you're a God of love. See, I think that's part of what David's talking about here. I think this is how he gets his soul rested. This is such good medicine for the soul, isn't it? And then the end of verse 2, and here's what I was talking about in our introduction here a little bit. He says, like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. What a statement. In fact, what a word picture. As our boys grew older, and many of you know this, you really miss those times when they lean back on you. Maybe there's a situation and the children are a little bit nervous. You, you've seen this. They'll back into your hip. They'll back in. They'll get close to you like, uh, Dad, I'm not sure. Right? We know that, don't we? 
They, they know their safety there. They back into you. They, Dad, Dad, is this, is this okay? Mom? Mom? There's that trusting in you. They, they're not sure what that is and what's going on out there and what, how that's going to turn out, but I know I'm safe with Dad and Mom right here, and so I'm going to back into them, and I'm going to put my trust in them. What a statement. Isn't, I mean, look at this. This is contentment. This is a well-fed child, a protected child. A child who has trust in, in his mother, knows that mom will protect her. Mom would lay her life down for her. And what mother, what at least Christian, godly mother, would not lay their life down for their children? There's simplicity to this, isn't there? Lay back. Rest against mom. Weaned is that there's a little more understanding, right? They're, they're of an age where they, they've grasped some things, right? They, they, they know not to walk in the street or you know, certain things, right? There's an understanding that they have, and their understanding is, is it simple? Mom is safe, and I'm going to stay here. And all of us that have empty nested in the recent years feel this. We miss this, don't we? Many times did your children climb into bed with your our boys used to climb into bed with us and, Dad, what about this, you know? And I've been thinking about, you know, the stars. You know, we get talking and, I mean, just fun stuff. And we miss those things because of that trust. But that's what David says. That's to see, this is how he overcomes anxiety that he has in his life is he, he backs up against the God he knows and trusts. All of that, I don't know how all of that is going to turn out out there, but I'm going to back in and, and lean against my God. And my soul is like that lean child within me. It's nurturing, isn't it? I, I think as I was writing this out, I thought, Lord, I think my anxiety, and probably many Christians' anxiety comes, is because we're not being nurtured by our Heavenly Father. Not that He's not trying to do that, but we're too busy trying to solve the world's problems, or at least our family problem or somebody's problems. We're not being nurtured by our Lord. Three, there's hope in God. Hope in God grants victory over anxiety. This last little verse is precious. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forever and forevermore. Well, I think what David is doing here is he is teaching those who God has entrusted to him. He's teaching them the answer to the, to the anxieties, the victory over anxieties here. And he says, oh, Israel, right? And, and we know David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's called the king. He's called the shepherd of Israel. He has these terms. And so he here now, after showing what, he, what God has done in his life and, and the pride that has been broken and the haughty eyes and, 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 and he's given up on the great matters, the things that are beyond him that doesn't know how it's going to happen. And he's quieted his soul and he's, He's become uh, like a child in the lap of the father. He now turns in his instruction to the nation and says, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in Yahweh. This is the exact wording. And not just now, but forevermore. Those terms are incredible, right? Hope, listen, hope is a gift from God to Christians. Think about that. They don't have any hope. Their hope is that their political party can put something together. 
right? Their hope is that the earth doesn't swallow up because it's angry. Mother Earth is mad because it doesn't get taken care of right, and you didn't recycle, and we're all going to die. I mean, I just go on, and it can get funny, and it can be very disturbing, too. David says, put your hope in Yahweh. Ephesians chapter 2, listen to this, verse 12. Just some verses to jot down. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a dark place. There was a time you and I were not believers. God had not flooded the knowledge of his son and the gospel into our heart, and we had no hope. We were without God in the world. That's a statement about most of society. They're without God in the world. We have hope. We have hope. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. And then it says this, and peace in believing. Write that verse down, Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I think that's what David's doing. (laughs) He's believing like a child in God. He's letting the most difficult things go that he can't solve, the great matters that he can't figure out how God's going to bring all this together. He's given up on his own pride and his his own personal desires for things God has not granted him. And he's finding peace. The The verse goes on in Romans 15, 13 to say, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, 6, 26 to 27, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to his saints, God's saints, to whom God willed, whom God willed to make known. I don't know how you get around that verse. What are the riches of the glory of the mysteries among the Gentiles in which Christ in you the hope of glory? He is our hope of glory. That's, that's, I, think, I think Paul's taken that right out of uh, Psalms 25. He's our hope of glory. It's interesting, there's a lot of hope written to women in the Bible. And I think there's probably many reasons for that that I won't expound on at this moment, but maybe some of you ladies can offer some help in this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5 for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God. The, the context is Sarah, of course, in that passage, who her husband not sold her once, but twice to harems, basically a sex trade. And, and it's honoring her and women like her who put their hope in God. In 1 Timothy Towards the end of, of, the chap, of, the, of the couple of chapters, he's getting into what is a widow and what, is a, what isn't a widow, so the church knows who to take care of and who not. Chapter 4, verse 10 says this, for it is... Ooh, I left that one out, sorry. Um, I thought I had that in there. I must have deleted it. Oh, wait, no, here it is. Chapter 5, verse 5, this is what I was after. Now she who is a widow indeed... That's the qualifications of a given, what is a widow? What biblically do we take care of from a widow? 
Um, you can go back and look at that, but it has to do with living family and things like that. And who has been left alone? Now listen to this. There's a, she, so she's a widow indeed. She meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 5. She's alone. And then, then this one puts in there. And has fixed her hope on God. That, that's how the New Testament was to recognize widows as women who put their hope in God. What, what a great passage. To the larger church, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 is actually, I got ahead of myself here, is Paul says, for this reason we labor agonazo and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. So Paul teaches us that we keep running, we keep running, we don't give up, we keep going, we even labor, we even agonize as we go through this life because this life is difficult at times because we have hope, it causes us to run. We were, a couple of us were discussing Romans 8, 28, not very long ago, um, because it's a great verse we quote all the time, you know, that God causes all things to work together for good. Really? That reformer that's being burned and watching his flesh fall off his body. Not very good at that point. See, I think what that passage is telling, there's such a grander scheme here. Many people, boy, we have been so blessed to live in America compared to what the world goes through. Our own missionaries suffer greatly at times under the oppression of the world. And so I, I, think, I, I think sometimes we go, well, God, where's the good? Where, where's the good? You may not see it at this moment, but God has a good purpose, and it may not come to your death. did for a lot of reformers and a lot of people down through the ages. But we're to fix our eyes, fix our hope, excuse me, on the living God who is a Savior, especially for believers. So to hope in God versus our circumstances, to hope in something that is certain. So that's what I think he's after here. Israel, God has made me king over you. And I want to shepherd you. And the best thing I can do for you is not these walls, not these, these warriors and armies. The best thing I can tell you is to put your hope in God. That's what he was doing as king. Because God's not going to change. Our enemies are going to change. Our circumstances are going to change. The weather's going to change. All that stuff is going to change. But God is immutable. He does not change. You can find him. He is not like the shifting shadows that Ephesians talks about. He's undefeatable. Isn't that great? We have an undefeatable God. I think this creates victory over anxieties when we struggle with them. So to place our hope in what is good is to know that God is good. And he's stronger and he's bigger than our issues. He's on our side. If you're a Christian, you have God on your side. Who, who, Romans 8 says, can stand against him. And yet we worry, don't we? We worry about our children. We worry about our finances. We worry about our health. We, we worry, worry, worry and create anxiety. And so, and you know, Scott, do you do this? I go, absolutely. I'm burying my soul to you tonight. <laughs> but, the, but the answer is to go back and quiet your soul. Put your hope in God. Will you have a quiet time before this day ends? Will you have a quiet time tomorrow where you and I will quiet our souls 
briefly as it is compared to the busyness of our life, but quiet our souls enough to find peace from the anxiety that pushes us. One time studying Matthew 8 when Jesus calms the seas, I wrote in my Bible, in one of my Bibles, Jesus, please calm the seas of my heart. Things are hard. There's a lot of difficult things going on, isn't there? Long, long elder meetings. Working through lots of challenging things as we look at the future of going forward and schools and preaching and caring for the saints and all those type of things. And I was just so reminded of this and I put in my notes, Jesus, please calm the seas of my heart. How helpful that is. Some great verses to jot down along that. Of course, is Philippians 4, verses that you know. The Philippians 4 tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your generous spirit be known unto all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. Wow. Well, guard. Well, guard your heart. In your minds in Christ Jesus, well, how do you do this? Well, whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. If it has any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell, meditate, deeply long on these things. Stay long on them is the idea. Otherwise, you'll be drug away. First Peter chapter 5, another passage you know very well, but I want to read it to you anyway. The Bible tells us, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I think when I struggle with anxiety or you struggle with anxiety, it is probably a direct reflection of our lack of humbling ourselves. That's why we pray for each other, right? Do you have a prayer list for brothers and sisters in this room? I do. It's always growing. I'm always praying for more people in here. Because it helps us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he'll exalt you at the proper time, but cast all. (laughs) Some of them, the ones we think God can handle. Cast all your anxiety. There's our word on him because he cares for you. What a reminder. And so I think hope in the Lord is waiting on the Lord at times too. Last week, again, we were spent time as a staff kind of wrestling through what it means to wait on the Lord. And we said this, we said there's so many spiritual benefits and blessings of waiting on the Lord. We are not good at waiting, are we? We don't like waiting for the hospital to get back us on that appointment. We don't like waiting for this or that. We struggle with waiting, but the Bible is just full of verse after verse. If you're in Psalms 131, just turn over a page and you should jump to Psalms 123. And here we find another one of the ascents psalms here. Um, and it says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heavens. Behold, as eyes of a, ma- of a servant look to the hand of the master. We, we said this in staff. It's so interesting how the Bible is not politically correct. <laughs> Slaves, as the slave looks to its master... That's how the eyes of what I want to have, the psalmist is saying. 
I see you enthroned in the heavens. I want to be like a servant who can't go out and make his own living. He's, he's bound, he's indentured, he's owed, he's, he's owned by this master. And he looks to that master because he can't provide his own way because he's a servant, he's a slave to that master. He looks to them to provide for him. That's how I want to look to you, God. Quite interesting analogy, isn't it? As the eyes of a maid and to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. See, there's this waiting, there's this beholding, waiting on him to supply what we need. And, and Romans 8 reminds us that he did not, he did not, not spare his son for us, right? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over us, how will he not give us freely, give us all things? So hope builds this, this spiritual expectation as we wait on God. Listen to this. Let's jot this down. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Hmm. Isaiah 30, 18. 30, 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. That's a different view of God, isn't it? I mean, people go, I don't know. He's He's not doing what I want him to do. The Bible says that he longs to be gracious to us. Then the Bible says this in this verse, For the Lord is a God of justice. Listen to this. How blessed are all those who long for him. What an amazing thought. How blessed are those who long for him. The word blessed is this blissfully joyful person. Are you blissfully joyful? And if you say honestly in your heart right now, I'm not, it's probably because we're not longing for him. We're longing to be understood properly. We're longing for justice. We're longing for a lot of things, but we're not longing for him. So longing for the things of the Lord will bring victory over anxiety. One last cross-reference to this, um, James chapter 5, verse 7. We, we looked at this verse 2 on Tuesday morning. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he gives us an example which some of us can understand, and maybe I'll give you some help here. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. What a great illustration. On our ranch, we planted winter wheat, and so in the fall, when It was as dry as can be. We put seed in the ground, trusting God would bring the rains. And nine months later, we would be haying that that grain and having it for the storage for the winter, for the cattle and so forth. And and there was a great lot of patience. You put this seed, you drilled it into the ground, and and, and you need it to die and reproduce and sprout and, and stool out and sprout again and produce this great crop. You wait for it. You put a little teeny kernel in there, and in the end you get hundreds and hundreds of kernels back from that one kernel, but you've got to wait for it. Verse 8, you too be patient. Strengthen your heart for the coming 
of the Lord is near. And so we end with that statement, the final statement in Psalms 131, where David says, from this time forth and forever. Here, he's, he, he is, his hope is in the Lord. And, and one of the things that I, I, I want to, to kind of tie a bow around this, from this time forth and forever. So hope is in the Lord. That starts at salvation. It continues through sanctification. And it lasts throughout eternity. That's what we will never stop hoping in the Lord. Now, our, our faith will be sight when we see him, but, but we'll never stop. And David says that hope now and hope forever. That's what we do as Christians. The world's trying to rob you of your hope, right? You watch the news too much, you can be really hopeless. John Bunyan wrote this. John Bunyan was one of the great reformers, was put in prison for years and years and years for teaching that the church could not save, that only Christ could save. And they put him in prison for years and years. He said this, hope is never sick when faith is well. Let me say that again. Hope is never sick when faith is well. When faith is weak and ill and hasn't been cared for by spiritual disciplines of being quiet with the Lord and reading and praying and trusting God and going through all those things, if if that gets sick, then hope seems hopeless at times. And so, don't forget this powerful statement from this time forth and forever. Are you trying to be a child of God? Good question, isn't it? Trying to be a child. Father, thank you for the time and the word we've had tonight. These are um, good for me, good for the church, good for any person who claims himself to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, young people, boys and girls, Lord, it's so easy for us to Sola brute strapped us ourselves. We want to pull ourselves up. We want to take our eyes off you and we start to sink in the waves of despair. You are our hope. All we have is Christ. And we sang tonight. Lord, we got to believe that when we go home tonight. We got to believe that tomorrow. And we got to take times to quiet our souls so we can put our trust there. So, Lord, I ask that you would help me and you would help my dear friends here, brothers and sisters in the Lord, as we strive to wait on you, to rest our souls and put our hope in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.